most certainly here, Chris. Thank you, thank you. Welcome, welcome. Backstroke because it's pouring where I am. It is raining. Oh yeah, raining, it's raining. Just, just absolutely too much water. God bless it. I don't want to jinx anybody. You know, we need the water, but there's so much. <laughs> wow, it's ridiculous. <laughs> You know, every now and then, um, especially if, if you fly, folks, if you fly from, from the United States to Europe or Africa or whatever, you know, there's there's that realization that there's a lot of water on this planet. I mean, if you really think about it, and it, it always hits me that we're, you know, we're in a jet, we're doing like 300 miles an hour or more, 35,000 feet, and it takes hours to cross the ocean. That's a lot of water. <laughs> That's a whole lot of water. So <clears throat> this kind of rain, yeah, this is this is intense. But I'm I'm just thinking, maybe maybe I should learn to swim better. <laughs> man, it's crazy, man. Yeah, this is just wild. It's wild. But it, as always, good to hear from you. And you know, both our minds are percolating on today's topic, uh, which which you have graciously allowed me to uh, to advocate for. And so I'm going to. Um, at, as a as a writer and as also as a as a teacher of of writing both um, short stories and things like that, but also screenplays, you know, I work with or I come across a lot of students, young and adult age. You know, so you got young adult, you've got you know your twenty somethings and thirty somethings, then you've got even the older crew, the geezers, yeah, the, ge <laughs> the geezers. Yes, what does it sound like a new ABC series? Um, but, you know, with all the students that I've encountered, every now and then you run into some who are really sort of, uh, I guess the best way to put it is they're, they're, they're really having, in various ways, some sort of struggle with who are they writing for? and Or, or I pose that question, who are you writing for? Because there's work that you can do that is obviously you're, you're creating it, you're generating it, to pull in an audience, whatever that audience might be. And then there's the work that you do where it, it there, are, there are aspects of it that do not seem to engage me as the reader, or sometimes if they're sharing it with their classmates or their fellow students or whatever, people aren't being pulled into it. And that's because there's something or several things that are not compelling enough or engaging enough to get us to really buy into the story and care about what's going on. And I get into conversations with these students and, you know, in an attempt to support them and help them develop that. And I get so much pushback. And so I thought it would be a good episode to discuss, you know, uh, who do you write for yourself or an audience, you know, and, and, and if it's a, if it's both, how do you, how do you juggle that? You know, what are the components and the elements of, of becoming that kind of a writer where you can please both camps? Well, if I, the first thing I would say is that everybody writes for themselves, and then there's the graduation, right? Um, there's a difference between masturbation and art. You know, difference between masturbation and communication, right? And the purpose of art is to con is to communicate your idea to others. So if you're not interested in that, if you just want it your way and only your way, and 
this is great because I wrote it, you know. I think, therefore, I am great. <laughs> well, that, say the truth, is masturbation. That's you just saying, ah, this is so great, I'm so great. That's not really, that's inward, you know, that's, that's aimed inward as opposed to outward, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, from selfish, you have to become selfless or more selfless. You, um, if you are really a writer or an artist or a creative, the goal is to communicate. Right. The reason why we do all this is to say we are here and we see things a certain way. And here's my contribution to the grand conversation. Well, in order to do that, you have to do it somewhat in a language that people can recognize and take in, whether it's a visual or uh, written or spoken or sung. You have to, you have to reach out and touch uh, another person's heart for it, for art to really function as art. So that's the first test, you know. If uh, if a creative is not interested in sharing it, then well, you know, the conversation ends. Good well, luck with you. you I, know? I I think I would I would also just you know from. From from my point of view too, I mean, I, I I certainly can agree with you. There there are folks who absolutely appreciate it or approach it that way, but I also you know you, you encounter students who say from their you okay there, buddy? Just a little cough. Oh okay. Well, students who will who will say you know I, I I don't I don't really care about this. I, I I want them to see this. I want them to hear this. I just want to show such and such, and and I would think at that point that is not necessarily. And again, I'm not playing the age game here. I've heard this from young people, and I've also heard this from some of the uh, the older, the geezers, as you put it. Um, there's something that they desperately want to communicate. And at times, what it sounds like to me and to other teachers, instructors, and writers that I've talked to, it sounds like they're saying, I, I don't want to spend time working on this other stuff. Uh, I don't understand the importance of this other stuff. I don't believe that I can do this other stuff or I'm tired of trying to do this other stuff because this is not the first time I've heard this comment. I think there are these other factors in there. And so it's it's not always, uh, as as you so colorfully put it a moment ago, playing with oneself, but it is I mostly... did not say that. Yeah, I know what you said. I used the scientific uh, terminology. <laughs> <laughs> so I I feel like sometimes there are there are layers or levels or or even different uh, obstructions for creatives when they are pursuing writing, you know whether screenplays, short stories, plays, poetry. When they're pursuing writing, there are these steps, and sometimes right. these steps trip people up, or you know to be even more transparent, more honest about it. Sometimes it is it is a, a a challenge that they're not up to, and well, yeah, yeah. And, and and I think there's a um, there's a sliding scale, right? A uh, fluidity, right? Um, uh, these days, uh, there's a belief that um, uh, you can be gender fluid, right? You mm-hmm. can be anywhere along this uh, scale 
you can you can even kind of slide back and forth or creative i think on that one end is ego and the other end is artist and you slide up and down on that depending on different aspects of your art and if you are still not unwilling to do the work to get it to the level where the greatest number of the people that you want to share or communicate with can embrace it, well, then then that's more ego than artist. And when you are ready to do that hard work, ready to learn that technique, ready to rewrite, right? I took a a, a class one time, uh, writer's boot camp, and the motto was the secret to writing is rewriting. And I believe that's the best element I got out of that experience. But I agree with it, you know? So when you're ready to do that work to get the art to that next level, then it's more artist than ego. And I'm not saying I'm already way over where I need to be on that scale. I think we all are on that kind of journey. I, I think that's a journey that, that we must explore every single time we, we tackle oh, yeah. a project. You know, it's, it's 100%. Yeah, 100%. Absolutely. Why am I writing this? What am I trying to say? What, what is, what's important to me? How, what's the best way to communicate it? Who are these characters? You know, there's all of those things that we go through. I would suspect, um, and please, you know, you know, counter if you wish. I would suspect that what does happen is the more you do it, you might get better at certain aspects. You might it might come easier, or quicker, certain aspects. But I mean, there are also those occasions where you run into a wall. You go, "Whoa, why can't I get through this? What is it I'm trying to say?" And you might even find out. Well, you know what? You said it already, and now you're being redundant, and you're in love with these lines here, but they really don't fit. Yeah, you know, you start. I would say say two things about that. Um, It's different for each creative at what level they do that, right? Mm. Mm. Some visual artists do it with thumbnails, you know, and um, uh, pre visualizations in movie making, right? You know, it could be from storyboard to now little uh, computer. Uh, sketchy scenes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it could be an outline for a writer or a first draft. You could just go and do everything you want to do. Mm-hmm. But then you have to go and do the professional work. Okay, does that work? Does that not work? Why doesn't it work? Is it? Does it need to be there? Would it better serve the story somewhere else? Um, can we enter the scene later? Can we leave sooner? You know, um, not to get pop culture on us, but, you know, I've been living in the world of Endgame as so many of us have. And the most interesting thing, you know, behind the scenes that I found out was uh, from an interview with the writers, Marcus and McFeely, that said that the, the Russo brothers, Marcus McFeely, Feige, and maybe one or two others, would sit in a room with the script up on a big screen and they would discuss each scene as it as it relates to big picture, each exchange, each line. Sometimes they would focus on a word in a line, you know, and that level of, of scrutiny, God bless them, you know, that's, that's <laughs> a ton of work to do, but I don't think you can argue with, 
of the results. They're in their third weekend, and it looks like they're going to be the number one, you know, uh, at the box office all time in three weeks. That is unheard of and unprecedented. I think abstractly we can take that as, you know, pointing to hard work pays off. I would you know, and it's, go ahead. You know, the same thing happens. You know, on our level of work, you know, you, uh, if you rewrite and if you're willing, you know, to have the conversations, you know, we, we had a conversation on a, a relatively short story and it came down to one word, <laughs> right? right? Yep. It came down to yep. the N word. Um, you know, and I tested that theory. I have the kids reading a, a Walter Mosley story in my senior English class. And I could not leave the F-bomb in, so I took that out. And I left uh, the S-word for feces, I left that in. Uh, but then he used the N-word twice. And um, it was culturally relevant. And he's Walter Mosley and I'm not. <laughs> and I said, maybe I should respect him and leave that word in with the exception of one kid who was ELL and was just reading each word phonetically. I don't think he realized the word he was saying. Everyone who came up against that word skipped it. Wow. Yeah. So uh, what, and what, what was the makeup of your class, uh, ethnically um, speaking? It's Rainbow Coalition, baby. Mm. As, as everything in there, uh, every, every ethnicity, uh, well, uh, just of a wide variety of, uh, of, uh, uh, Latinos, Latinas, and African Americans, and Caribbeans, and uh, uh, Irish or, or uh, Caucasian. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if they're all Irish, but you know, uh, it's a mix. Um, and they skipped uh, the word. Some, some Indians, some uh, South Americans, some Asian. Yeah, I mean, yeah, to a person with the exception of one kid who, God bless, he is working his butt off. But I don't know if he even realized the word. He's he's from um, South America, if I remember, and um, second and third year in, and something like that. And he's still working very hard to uh, understand. And here I am throwing Walter Mosley at him, which is using pure American idioms. But my point being... Uh, you and I, I mean, and, and it was, I was the advocate for not using the N-word because, you know, as I said in the class, you know, I had to respect Walter, but given my own choice, I refused to give that word any power, you know, and, 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 and sometimes you have to make those decisions, you know. Um, you know, I, it, I have to say, just to point out how sensitive, and this is not a knock, this is not a, a put down, just to point out how sensitive you are to it, I didn't even use the whole word. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's but because, it was just as, you know. I have my is, own feelings about that word, you know, for my own reasons. So, but, you know, in terms of the era that it was in, that's one of the words that would have come up. So every yeah. now and then I have to juggle with my feelings versus. Uh, but, you know, again, we digress slightly, but you were saying. Yeah. But, but I'm, I guess our, my point is, you know, sometimes doing the work, you know, requires considering 
is this the best word? Mm-hmm. Is this the best description? You know, I'm also an Elmore Leonard advocate when it comes to the word said. You know, uh, and I argue in my English department very often. Well, they said, here's the list of, of words used instead of said. Said is dead. Said said's not dead. It is functionally invisible, and that's the way it should be. You know, I said, if we use your list, it sounds like two escaped uh, patients from a, uh, 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 an insane asylum talking. You know, someone chortled and someone else hissed. No, people don't have those conversations, you know, <laughs> right? And it, it all goes to the art. It, it, you have to focus. You'll notice as you're, as if you're a writing creative, um, you use less adjut- uh, yeah, um, adverbs, the better you get at writing. You choose a good noun, a really strong verb, every once in a while an adjective, and the, the, those will do it for you. You know, he said darkly, well, make sure the sentence is dark and you don't have to say darkly, right? Mm. It, I think it gets to that level sometimes when you're doing the work. You know, does this goes back to this goes back to again, how much work are you capable of doing or are you willing to do? And uh, who are you talking to? Um, sometimes uh, the, the challenge for some of the students is not even in what we might call general conversation or standardized conversation, but it's when they're pursuing some sort of esoteric uh, theme, something that is very heady. To them, you know, it's it's like a psych session, but they want to do it with characters, and you know, one, it's how how mature and 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 how how much understanding of that topic are you approaching it with? Are you approaching it from a single character's POV, your point of view, or is it something that several characters are wrestling with? You know, and then you get into okay, so what are the highs and lows? What are the rise and falls? of this scene? What's the value of it? What am I trying to do with this scene? And as I said, sometimes you will have people say, um, I, I, I just want to get this out. I just want to get this out. This is what's the most important and none of the other stuff at either end. And I would beg to differ. But if they don't see that, then it becomes a discussion of, okay, why are you telling this story? Is it for you or is it for an audience? Do you want to get this point across or do you want to get us thinking about this topic or this situation or this condition, or do you just want to be able to spew or make your statement for you, but have a bunch of people listening? Well, I, and and I think some, I agree with you 100%, but I would add to it that um, sometimes it indicates a lack of experience. Mm-hmm. And if it's a screenwriter, then maybe they need to go and see these 10 movies, two classics and eight just horrible pieces of crap. <laughs> right? And you watch the two, really, you, uh, and this is not my idea, I read it years ago, but you, re, you watch the two classics first to see how it's done well. And then you learn so much more from the crappy movies because it sticks out how poorly something is done. Yeah. And then you start to appreciate. And when you go back to your work, you might see where, you know, where the zippers are showing or the, uh, uh, you know, or where the sledgehammer that's 
you know, has the word theme written on it, is smashing your characters in the head. And that's when you realize, okay, I can do it better. You know, um, if we go to the Godfather and we go to that baptism scene where all is a montage of all revenge while he's denouncing Satan and all that sort of stuff, that scene has been redone by lesser lights dozens of times. And if you watch that scene, and then you watch something, I think it's called Rumble in the Bronx or something like that, or, or uh, Battle in the Bronx, War in the Bronx, one of those, where they do a similar scene. Uh, a friend of mine portrayed a stripper uh, in this, and that they kept going back to as they were going to all these violences they would go back to. And the scene doesn't work because while she's a beautiful woman and, you know, and all that sort of stuff, She's stripping in an empty strip joint, you know, and it doesn't mean anything. The center of the Godfather baptism scene is the priest asking the orchestrator of all that murder and mayhem if he denounces Satan and all his works and the I do's all punctuate the violence, you know, the violence and how much he's lying before God you know, for the purposes of what he truly believes in, which is, you know, the, the family, the Cosa Nostra, right? So yeah. it, 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 is, it has reached a level of art, right? And I think part of that is experience, you know? We get experience living our life, but we also get experience, you know, every writer that has achieved anything will tell you two things. There's two things you need to do to become good write all the time and read all the time you know and the same thing goes for artists artists you know visual artists have to go to museums they have to see other artwork uh filmmakers have to watch movies all the time photographers you know? are taking pictures going to museums looking at other people's work yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It is. think what you want about tom cruise but uh, as the story goes he watches two films a day besides all the other work he does well, I'll go. I'll go one one better, or not better necessarily. I'll add to the tapestry. Uh, I was uh-huh. I was fortunate enough years ago to meet a British actor by the name of Jeremy Britt. Uh, at the time, that's Jer- a little on the nose, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Jeremy Britt <laughs> had uh, very funny. Jeremy Britt had been for several years portraying on the BBC British Broadcasting uh, Corporation in England Sherlock Holmes, and those films, those TV episodes. Uh, which were, you know, of the homes of the period of the uh, Victorian era, were also broadcast here in the United States. So I knew his work from that, but I also had seen him in other other films and things earlier. But anyway, I was getting to meet him here in New York as he was on tour uh, for the new season that was coming up, and he'd been he'd been sort of uh, absent absent for a little while, and I knew why, but you know, I, I still wanted to meet him. And here was that opportunity, so. The thing was, it was at a little bookstore in Manhattan called uh, Mystery Bookshop. And you had to go into the store and get online. And we went up these little narrow winding metal steps to a, a narrow little causeway that led into this room where he was sitting at a table. And he would greet each one of us one at a time. And you'd have a few moments to speak to him. So I'm on this line and I'm thinking, okay, I'm only going to have like three minutes, maybe five uh, to talk to him, I wanted to, you know, at least tell him how much I enjoyed his work, why I enjoyed his work. So be specific about what I liked, uh, 
and and then quickly mentioned to him that I, you know, written a Sherlock Holmes play years before that had been produced, and and so I wanted to share just a moment of what it was like working on Holmes, you know, for me. And I figured that I can do that in five minutes. So I finally get into the room, and I sit down at the table, and he looks he looks a little tired, and I can understand that, you know, he's on tour, been talking to a lot of people. And so I sit down in front of him and I'm talking to him for a few moments. And I said something about my working on Holmes. And as I started to finish my sentence, figuring, okay, my time's almost up. He says, you know, um, I've been absent for a while because, you know, my wife was producing the Holmes uh, series in England and she died. And I knew she had died about it, you know, almost at that point a year before. And he said, and he's, he's, I mean, I'm, I'm stunned by this, but he's sitting there and he's telling me very calmly, he's saying that when that happened, it emptied me. He said, I had some, some, some difficulty, you know, just looking at, at going forward, you know, with things. And he said, I realized that at a certain point I'd become like the character I was portraying. He said, when, when you, when you read Holmes, he's an empty vessel. He's a, he's, he's a, a deductive reasoning individual, but the emotions and all those other things are absent. He said, and I realized to portray him, I had to fill myself up with with different things. I forget the term he used, but basically, I mean, he had to give himself mannerisms and such that reflected the life that Holmes led. And that would give him this character to portray. He said, I realized in life, I had to fill myself back up with yeah. things that allowed me to, to move forward after the loss of my wife. And I'm sitting there stunned because he's sharing this with me and we've gone past the five minutes and I'm hearing him. And it was something that, that, that Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury had also, I'd read that they had said something similar about filling themselves up with material that relates to what they do. So they always had something to pull from when they did their work, when they did their creative work. And so, that what you're saying right now, what Jeremy said, what Bradbury and others have said is very much the truth. And if you're very young, you who you know, I'm not gonna judge what you've experienced in life, but you've had a certain amount of experiences. As you continue on in life, you have even more. And the more you have, the more you have to reflect and give back yeah. or call on. And that's the reality. And you don't have to just fill yourself up with the narrow strip of interest that you have. Exactly. The more you fill yourself up with a wide array of things, the more you bring to that. You know, uh, how many writers or artists or filmmakers watch everything, read all sorts of stuff, fiction, nonfiction, biography, horror, poetry, just everything, because it all adds to the stew. Would you want to eat a stew that had just potatoes? No. That's potato soup, <laughs> right? But you add the vegetables and you add big chunks of beef or whatever, you know, and it becomes more flavorful and becomes more enriching. And, and that's really what we're doing, you so know? Then, so that goes back then to taking that into consideration. It goes back into who are you writing for? It is one thing, as you said, you said, uh, you know, we all write for ourselves. And I think to a certain degree that's true. The question then becomes, if we all write for ourselves initially, if that's the starting point, we have stories to tell, or we have these things we want to say, then who do we want to talk to? Do we want to talk mm -hmm. to ourselves, <laughs> or do we want to talk yeah, to an audience? Well, or, or do 
do we have to find our tribe, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the first thing. And, you know, like-minded individuals or, you know, uh, people who connect, you know, there's, uh, there's, you know, you learn that in school when everyone starts forming into cliques and all that sort of stuff. And you, in college, you really find your tribe, you know, and if you're a writer, well, writer groups or organizations or film groups or, you know, on and on and on, you find them and sure, okay, maybe you first write to them, but also pay attention to who they're writing for. And then who are your heroes and who do they write for? And what do they read? How do they feed their muse? How do they feed, you know, their, you know, feed your head, right? The old Mm -hmm. uh, Jefferson Airplanes, don't feed your head. You gotta look at, you know, look at a guy, love him or hate him. Look at Steven Spielberg. He he told stories about everything because he took everything in, from Jaws to military to high adventure to um, uh, um, the uh, Holocaust. You know, he's open to all different experiences. Now, how he tells his story, that's him. You know, one of the reasons that the Marvel fans are loving Marvel is because you can identify those different stories as being different genres. Sure, there's superheroes, but there's a war movie, there's a comedy, there's a uh, uh, there's a, uh, a spy movie, all of that goes, you know. And how to, many of us have not uh, felt out of place? When uh-huh, we've gone sure, every, everybody feels yeah, out of place. Know, some point in their you lives, we don't fit, you know, we're different from everybody else around us, and, and how do I remain true to myself when I have to survive in this particular world or environment? Uh, Aristotle, you are what you do most often. If you strike out at anger and insecurity, no matter what level you're on, we'll just leave that as it is, it says one thing about you, you know? If you, uh, if you keep your heart open, it says something completely different about you. And all of those people are among us all the time. You know, you want to do an exercise as a creative? Go to a mall when it's kind of crowded. Yep. And don't shop for yourself. Sit on a bench or, you know, have a, have a, you know, a tea or a coffee and watch a crowd and, and pick up uh, uh, bits and pieces of conversation. Or better yet, go to the biggest city near you. You know, for me, it's Manhattan. And, uh, you know, whenever I get to go in there, usually it's with the goddess. There'll be a certain <laughs> point, right? There'll be a certain point where we're walking down, being, oh, look at that older couple holding hands, right? But what we're doing is we're listening to everything else that's going on and the absolute feast of languages and energies. You know, uh, there's a, you know that cliche, there's a million stories in the big city. Yeah, you can walk through thousands of them. You take a nice long walk through Manhattan and you, you've learned so many. Take off your earphones. Yeah, yeah. Take your face out of the phone. Take your headphones off or your earbuds off and listen to the world. Be present. Be present in the world around you. Be present is the cornerstone of improv, of acting, of creative. It's the Buddhist way. You know, be present. So, so to be you know? to be more um, to to be even more. Uh... Uh, meticulous on that point or or to to sort of fine-tune it even more reality 
if you, for instance, grew up in a particular cultured neighborhood, like I, have, I was visiting a friend yesterday who grew up in a, in a very predominantly Jewish neighborhood, and for 17 years, that's what they knew as the world around them. They'd seen television and stuff like that, but that culture, that the, the, the voices, the stories, the movements, the belief system, all of that here in New York City, that culture was dominant to their experience. And then they, they transferred to another school. And the school was outside of that community. And for the first time in their life, they were in unfamiliar territory where oh, yeah. they weren't negative to what was coming, but they now were a stranger in a strange land and had to acclimate, A, to adjust to the fact that things were different and then sort of determine how are they different and then what influences were being now pressed upon them and vice versa. And from a creative point of view, that is a feast of material right there. From either side, it's remarkable. I was fortunate enough to go to, um, uh, to a high school and that was a mixed bag of people from the five boroughs. So it wasn't just a neighborhood high school where I was seeing the same old faces. This was now as meeting people from all over Manhattan, Bronx, Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and different lifestyles too. So all of this was a feast for me. You know, yeah, I'm, I'm studying to be an illustrator in high school of all things, but at the same time, I loved creating stories. And so I'm making notes and I'm trying to, you know, listen to how people talk and I go to visit their homes and I'm taking in all these things. This influences what you create. And to me, and I hope, you know, again, this is one of the points, who do you write for? Once you want to write stories, and I love mystery stories and adventure stories in particular, but once you want to write stories, where you set the stories, how you choose the characters, your lead versus your supports, all of these things are influenced by what do you know? What have you experienced? Because that's where you pull from. And if you know how somebody from Bay Ridge, Brooklyn talks, as opposed to somebody from York Avenue in Manhattan, then those characters come a little bit more alive and more genuine. And that's a word I like to use. They sound more genuine when you write them, when you create those moments. That's where your conflicts can come from or your attractions can come from, you know, because you know more, you are open to experiencing what's going on around you so that you can then take that in and use it in your art. Musicians... Musicians, I'll just say this one thing. Musicians, especially some of the more creative ones, whether they're jazz or pop or whatever, their music reflects their lifestyle, their upbringing, their, their focus. And, and people like, I went to see Boz Skag. I've seen uh, Clapton. I've seen you know, uh, some of the, the blues artists. And they reflect not only what they learned when they were coming up, but what they've experienced over the years. I think you mentioned one of our shows where... You, you went to see, um, I forget which uh, artist, which band it was, but about how, how they were doing new material that a lot of the fans hadn't heard, the older fans hadn't heard. Because that of, was Southside Johnny. There you go. Okay, so, you know, they're doing, they're still creating. But yeah, still the, creating. a lot of the audience is sitting there waiting to hear the old stuff that they were really like a fan of. Well, you know what? That's not what an artist is. An artist grows with his artist or her experiences. Grows. And that's what they're always trying to communicate. And I think that's why we need to be open and it's it's hard for for seasoned vets as well as the new new kids but the bottom line is you've got to try to be open to 
to critiquing or to quote unquote criticisms so that you can hear what's being said. Not just, oh yeah, they're talking to me. Hear what they're, they're saying and genuinely, honestly weigh the value of it. Is there something in there that they're saying? Some tiny bit of a 15 minute dial a monologue, but that one thing, yeah, you know what? That would work for me. Be open enough to hear those things. So that you can fine tune your voice, your work. I'll say, I'll give three examples to support what you're saying. Uh, Neil Simon, the legendary Broadway uh, playwright. Yeah. Uh, one of the aspects that made him a legend is that no matter where he was in his career, if people had some questions, you know, he would love putting the, the play up on his feet and seeing what it, what it really was, right? And he would take feedback, even when he was a legend, even when he had won all the awards and made millions on Broadway. He would take all the feedback, and his answer was always, I can fix that. And his reputation was, this is a guy who ran back to the typewriter. Mm. You know? That's, mm -hmm. that's someone who is the opposite of what we're hearing from your students, right? Number two, Sometimes it's a tiny little thing. I'm going to return to Walter Mosley. I was trying to teach the kids about voice. That was one of the reasons why I, I shared a Walter Mosley piece with them. And it was that, you know, we're doing crime, detective, suspense, uh, mystery. And that's the unit. Right? And I said, but that genre can do so much more. Here's a guy in L.A. Uh, that... Uh, is not only doing that mystery, but doing it in a unique way because he's not a detective. And two, he's making extreme commentary on a thorough, thorough commentary on what it was like to be black in America. And his books go from decade to decade to decade. So the cumulative effect is that he's giving a view, a history of being black in America through a mystery series, you know? As in one of the things that he does is he's very authentic in the roots of these characters, you know, in tracing the experience of African-Americans in, in, in America, right, or being black in America. After slavery ended, a lot of, people, a lot of them went from the South to the North. Mm-hmm. But they retained certain aspects of the South. And some of it was the, their inflection, right? Uh, so and I wrote the word can't on the board. I said, everybody said that. Say that. Read that to me. And everybody read it with a Northeastern American accent. Can't. Heavy. Chuh. Ant. You know? Mm -hmm. And then I said, he writes it this way. He writes it C-A-I-N apostrophe T. That's Cain. Mm-hmm. And just that one letter brings in the accent, suggests the roots, suggests the history of migration. There's all of that. And and the more in tune students as we read the piece, when there was a colloquialism during dialogue, they would read it and I'd see a couple of heads look up, see if I saw that they saw that they made note of it. Mm. You know, and and, and now those are the ones that I was, I was being more successful with. You know, and that's kind of the power 
you know. He doesn't do it rarely, because if you do all accents, then it becomes incoherent, you know. Um, but the idea of developing a strong ear is the same thing as developing a strong eye. Get away from the phone, get away from the headbuds, earbuds, and, and look at what's out there and really hear. Listen to your grandmother. How does she say things? What is the inflection? You know, what is it pulling from? That angry uncle, why is he angry? What's the root? Where is it really coming from? You know, the, the tensions in the family, the tensions in the neighborhood. How does one person deal with people and in, in your teachers as opposed to someone else? Why is someone more successful in negotiating the politics of peer groups and someone is not? Watch what they're doing. You know, I have, if anyone that's a writer in my, one of my classes, they will watch the interaction between two individuals, young African-American men. One challenges things on a random basis and can never sustain the argument. And his friend is taken to pulling him in and explaining to him that's not an argument. And then really, you know, really saving the whole class a lot of agita. Because he's better at negotiating uh, uh, what's real and what's not, you know, and it's fascinating to watch. And if it ever shows up in my in one of my books or not, I don't know. But all of that is fodder for the creativity and being able to say, "I can do better." All right, you know, if one person asks a question about one part of your piece, eh, yeah. If three people do. That's an absolute commandment. I told Take a you look at three. it. I have, I have, I told you about uh, Neil, told you about Walt Mosley. The other one is very pop culture, and that's the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Spider-Man. They gave him a Queen's accent, and it made all the difference. If you watch the earlier two iterations of Spider-Man in film, and then you watch Tom Hodlins, who's an English bloke. Yes, very much so. His, right? His accent is more authentic to where he comes from. He comes from Queens, you know? And Cap comes from Brooklyn. And, and when they have that exchange, you hear a little bit of the Brooklyn come out of Cap, and you hear Queens every time Holland opens his mouth. And the question That's becomes, is that a, an actor's choice or a director's choice or both? I find it kind well, of interesting. But it comes back to your initial question. If it's a director's choice and the actor refuses, then he's holding back the purity of the piece. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, it pays off again. I miss this. But apparently, um, Cap calls the Spider-Man somewhere in Endgame. Not as Spider-Man, not as Peter. He says, Queens. Whatever happened. <laughs> that is an absolute militarily accurate way of referring to people. You know, uh, you see the old World War II movies, and you, see, you know, talk to people in the military. They'll remember where you're from as much as your name. Right. Brooklyn, Sometimes Queens, they'll call you, yeah. hey, Kentucky, you know, yep, that kind exactly. of stuff. So I loved that they thought enough to pay, you know, his identifying uh, location off and pay off Cap's military background. You know, again, that's nuance. Nuance 
uh, breeds uh, acceptance of whatever you're offering as reality, and that makes the art more successful. I like to use, again, in my film class, I like to talk about uh, 12 Angry Men. Mm -hmm. you know? And recently what I found was, I, and it's, it's a resolution-wise, it's, 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 it hurts the eyes, but I found on YouTube uh, a videotaping of the play, or I should say a, a, a teleplay version of the actual play. So they actually filmed in a TV studio, 12 Angry Men, uh, back in, in, I believe it was, like, it was um, mid to late 50s, with Robert Cumming playing the lead role. Then they did the film, which I you know was also done towards the late 50s, with Henry Fonda in the lead role. And when you watch the opening sequence, you watch the opening sequence of the 12 jurors as they're hearing from the judge, you know, the summation because, hey, you're now going to go into the, the jury room and, and you know, deliberate and decide whether or not this young man is, is, is guilty of murder, in which case he's facing the death penalty. And in the, in the, the teleplay, we don't see the young man. We hear the judge drone on, so he sounds somewhat disinterested. But we hear the judge drone on, telling him, you know, this is what your responsibilities are. And then they, they stand and they start to go in. And you see Robert Cummings seems disoriented. He seems a little nervous, a little apprehensive as his character moves out of the, 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 the jury box and heads for the room. In the movie, Fonda's character is more attentive. He, he seems to be weighing something very heavy and seems to be paying attention and at the same time mulling something over. And when he gets into the jury room, whereas Cummings' character sort of seems, again, seems to be out of place. He's, he's in people's way as they come through the door and things like that. Fonda's character just moves very slowly and matter-of-factly over to a window and stands and stares out the window while everybody else scurries around and exchanges little remarks and you get a sense of who, what their personalities are. And I looked at this and I showed this to my students. And you know, one of the things that, that comes to mind is it's basically the same material, basically the same story. We're going to go through very much the very same uh, points of interest and conflict, but how it's approached by the director, production, and also by the actor determines the tone and the focus and how we get from point A to point B. And once again, the play had to be well-written. The piece had to be well-written in order for these two interpretations to survive and to be compelling and engaging. And the message remains the same. At some point in space, and this is a social, this is a social issue too, when you look at it, because here are 12 jurors, you know, this was up your peers, meaning like you, but here are these 12 people with very different lifestyles, interests, points of view, who are going to come together in that room and decide whether you live or die. And, and that says something and then those about two so versions, much. Excuse me? Well, those two versions you were talking about, you're layering on top of the script uh, actor and directorial choices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it, it result is two very different readings on that key character. Exactly. I we think you see the same thing when you look at uh, Kenneth Branagh's uh, Hamlet and... Uh, um, Zaffarelli's Hamlet featuring Mel Gibson, very different. Um, and the end, there's you know David Tennant, and there's you know there's four, five, six other 
versions of Hamlet that you can view, and it's a each each actor, each director will set a different tone on it, and those are the choices, right? So your choices matter as a creative, and they matter because what are you trying to say? And who are you trying How to say are you it to? Saying it? I'm sorry. And who are you trying to say it to? Yeah. Well, you can make an argument that uh, Brana and uh, Zaffarelli are making it uh, to film-going public. But then you get to the next step. Who? Who do you think in that film-going public is going to come and see this film? Mm-hmm. And that answer becomes very different. That's right. You know? And and the goals. I mean, the Zaffarelli chopped Fortinbras and that whole Fortinbras story out of the film. It becomes a different story. Yeah. A much smaller story. You know? Uh, uh, Kenneth Branagh did every single line, if I remember correctly. And uh, the pageantry with which he did it, uh, it makes a completely different statement aimed at a different audience. So it comes back to your the answer of your original question. It does matter. It does matter that each and every creative answers that question. Who am I trying to reach? Who is this for? Maybe not the first draft. You know, get your story out the first draft. But by the second draft, yeah, you have to take a look at it and... Uh, I'm hearing very often nowadays that, you know, uh, the story tells you what it wants to be or the film tells you what it wants to be in the process. You know, and some things you try, you've you've had the same experience. You're trying to put this scene in because you think the scene is right and it won't work, it won't work, it won't work. (laughs) And when you put it to the side and move on, the story works much better without it. Yeah. Right? I use a um, extras file and I'll take, if something's like that, I'll take the entire scene and put it in the extras file saying to myself, I can always grab it if, you know, if it needs, if the story needs it. I have never put back a story from the extra files or a scene from the extra files. Never. And it's good because you 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 have a place so you don't worry about it anymore and you can get on with the business of writing the story. Um, but part of that is being true to the material and serving the story, yes. But knowing who it's for. You know? And, and that's, you gotta get over yourself and get into, you know, that next level. Let me let me add two more things to this. Uh, the first, yeah, this one one would be uh, a personal experience. Uh, years ago, when I was both uh, pursuing acting and and writing, more acting than writing, uh, I wrote a Sherlock Holmes play with with absolutely from day one the intention of playing one of the characters in the and piece. Sherlock Holmes in the hands of Othello, right? That's it. That's it. And uh, I worked my butt off. On, on that script, the first and second draft, I worked my butt off because, not only because I wanted the mystery to actually work, or because I put an actual real-life character into this, or I should say base the storyline on a real-life character named Ira Aldridge, who, who had lived in, and, and was a, uh, a noted uh, so, uh, Shakespearean actor, a black Shakespearean actor who had gone from America to Europe uh, and became a celebrity. Not just because of that, but because... I, I really worked at getting the accents right, 
the difference between the colloquialisms that someone from the West End would use and how Holmes spoke and how the elite that he was encountering spoke. And an American, another American actor who'd come over, who's also African-American, um, and how he spoke. And that, so I really worked on the language. I really worked very hard to get the Cockney and other things in there as best I could. Listen to a lot of material, talk to people, all of that. So I finally, you know, have, I was on my third draft of the play, and I was also performing in a play out of town. And one, one afternoon, the actors of that piece, several of them said, well, you know, what are we going to do this evening? And I thought, you know what, I'm working on this play, and I, I, I really could use hearing it and, and playing with it. Maybe we could do a reading. And we did. We all came together. They were really some talented people. I was very, very fortunate to have them there at that time. And as I listen to it and I'm reading my role I'm I'm realizing something that was it was hard it was really hard for me to accept but I I could hear that there was more work I needed to do as a writer and I could also at that same moment tell that one of the reasons I had not moved on it sooner was because I was still thinking of it as I'm writing this place so I can be in it you know yeah I want to get I want to get this up on its feet so I can be in it you know I, I can't wait to perform in this and I realized it can't serve two men. Right. I realized I had to make a decision that that weekend, doing that reading, I decided this is not a play for me to perform in. This is a play that I'm writing. Period. Mm -hmm. I am the writer. Mm -hmm. And the moment I became the writer, the rewrites became easier. You know, I I like committed to it a thousand percent more. Because now it was it was even more about the story, the words, the pacing. All of those things became more important. It was almost like I was free to run and really yeah, run. Yeah, you were serving the story yeah. rather than serving both the story and your desire to be in it. You were serving the story. I think that's the only way to do it. You need to serve the it's art. It's key for us as creatives. Again, whatever the, the medium you work in, it's key to become so passionate about the thing you're creating that you will do whatever is best for it. Yes, but you have to be careful. Yeah. There's a very thin line between artistic passion and artistic ego. Yeah. The only way to tell that is to be painfully, brutally honest with yourself. Yep. And that is extremely difficult to do. And it is, and but if you can do it, it is liberating. Because I agree. it frees you to really do the work. And if the work shines, if it's your best work, even if the world doesn't embrace it the way you want, you know that's my best. You know I gave that 110%. And I can stand tall next to that. Um, and then the other thing I want to bring up from a practical standpoint is that identifying why you're writing this, pardon me, identifying why you're writing this, who you're writing for, all of those elements, also affects another end of it. It affects sales and marketing. If you are promoting this yourself, if you are self-publishing or you're producing the play yourself or it's a recital or a dance piece that you're doing, whatever it is that you have to get it out into the masses, knowing who you're going after that, that additional focus helps you, on a number of levels, market your, your work, get your work to the target audience. 
and not wasting time, money, or whatever other resources on trying to reach everybody. You know, because that's exhausting. Now, I guarantee you, Marvel is quite happy with the fact that aside from new moviegoers, they've pulled in millions of comic book fans. You know, and and the fact that some of us see that as, oh, you know, the our favorite characters on television or on the film screen doing their thing, that's fine, that's great. And you get some of them chattering about, well, I didn't need this in the movie, I didn't need that. But the other people they got were moviegoers who want to see a good movie, whether they're wearing costumes or uniforms or tutus. You know, they wanted to see a good, solid movie with people and characters they could connect to, and they did. And so that's more money into the till. Good story well told. Yeah. That's, you know. So the ultimate, you know, the reality here is... Serve yourself, serve the story, serve your audience. And to do that, as you've been saying a lot, Chris, you've got to be brutally honest with yourself. You know, if this is important for me to say this, okay, who am I saying it for? For me, if it's just for me, in the journal, uh, in, on my hard drive somewhere where nobody else needs to get to it, fine. Say what you want, do what you want. If it's for an audience, whatever that audience is, how do I reach them? How do I make this the best story possible that's going to pull them in and help get the points across that I want, blah, 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 whatever that's going to be. How do you want them to feel when it's over? Work on that. You know, These are those things that really it's about serving you. It really is. It serves you whether you know it or not. It serves you. It then serves your audience, and certainly it serves the story. And what, and what does that allow you to do? <laughs> Tell the damn story. Boom. <laughs> Uh, okay, Chris, it's, as always, it's always a pleasure talking with you, man. Yeah, the joy of my life to talk to you, sir. That and yeah. hanging out with the goddess. I know that. I know that takes top priority. Yeah, it does. What can I tell you? <laughs> Give her my best, will you? All right, and we're back to you and all yours. You got it, buddy. Peace. Take care, everybody. And please, you know, leave your comments. You know, we ask all the time. We're getting some. Thank you very much. Keep it coming. All right, everybody, take care. Take care.